0: To my little friend. This is your host, Glenn Peoples And this is, in fact, after much ado Another episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend That podcast that appears very sporadically these days To give you a a shot in the arm of Whatever it is I happen to be thinking about Theology or philosophy or social issues or biblical studies Or whatever I wish to unload on you And as it turns out Um, I was up in Auckland earlier this year, and I gave a talk to a small theological organization called the Conditional Immortality Association of New Zealand, the CIA, as we fondly refer to them sometimes. And that talk is the one that I'm going to give to you now. It is called Material Salvation. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, a Star Wars movie. Chances are that you have, but... Every time you sit down to a Star Wars movie Right at the outset you're served a wall of scrolling text Text that recounts the relevant bits of the history In the Star Wars universe That led you up to the story that you're about to watch So that it all makes sense You know why these events are happening in front of you Now alas I I can't offer you the dramatic opening music of Star Wars But here is the story that brought me to give you this talk. Most Christians, uh, like adherents of most religions actually, are dualists when it comes to human beings. That means that they think a human being is two parts, a body and a soul. And and they might mix up the terminology, but essentially there are two parts to what you are. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear people say three parts, adding a spirit into the mix as well. But the idea is that there are two kinds of substances involved, material and non-material. And the I, the the real I, the real me, I am a non-material soul or mind that inhabits or interacts with the world through a material body. This meaty object that you would see before you today if this wasn't a podcast, if you were seeing me give this talk. Unlike the body, which gets old and dies... The soul is immortal, not subject to death at the end of this three score and ten years, or hopefully a bit longer. The soul goes to heaven or hell or purgatory or or some sort of intermediate state between earth and heaven, depending on the particular theology of the Christian in question. Now, from the first century of its existence, Christianity expanded from Jerusalem, where it began, into the Gentile world, where dualism was a basic part of the worldview of converts from the various pagan religions, not just Greeks, but most of the religious world. Now, that dualism remained with the converts to the Christian faith, and so it became integrated into their new religious outlook. Beyond the historical influence of pagan religion, we're told that dualism is an intuitive, if perhaps naive, interpretation of reality that we acquire without even trying. Now, not everyone agrees with that, but certainly many do. And as is perfectly natural, Christians take what they think is obvious or that which they have just assumed as part of the faith handed down to them. And they find it in Scripture, because that's the way we we read the Bible. We read it with our assumptions. However, in recent centuries, this near consensus has been increasingly called into question, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries. The Hebrew Scripture, biblical scholars are increasingly telling us, does not reflect this popular view of, of the human person, and it instead presents a model of human nature that is material and unified according to which we are part of the physical creation composed of the dust and returning there when we die immortality is not something that we have but it is something that we can obtain and even then it's it's a bodily physical immortality like that of the risen Jesus And it will be bestowed as an act of divine grace through the resurrection of the dead. And there are a lot of ways that we could label this perspective. Physicalism or materialism, emphasizing that we are material beings. Uh, Mortalism, emphasizing that we are mortal through and through. Or conditional immortality, highlighting the fact that while we are mortal, we can become immortal on certain conditions, namely the condition of a saving relationship with God. And so a battle of ideas rages. Those Christians who hold to a material view of human beings are often labeled as those who are caving into naturalism, as giving up crucial aspects of the faith, as devaluing human beings, and so on. And as as far as I'm concerned, these sorts of red herrings are... Invitations to look away from the biblical data And to look instead to the cultural concerns of my fellow Christians Now, look, I, I care about my fellow Christians And those concerns matter and they should be addressed But they cannot tell us what is true and what is not All the while, the number of sincere and conservative Christians Who have come to this realization Because that's what I think it is, a realization Continues to grow And so here we are talking about it today And that's the story so far. I want to first say a word about how not to use our time. Us being the people who have gained this perspective that I've just described. How should we not use our time? Although Christians, materialists or otherwise, believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, it's still true that the time that we have between now and the grave is finite And we have a responsibility to use it well. I want you to imagine that every Sunday when the minister got behind the pulpit in church, he gave a sermon about why you should believe in God. He wheeled out very good arguments and explained them thoroughly. His case was not lacking in quality in the least, but it was the same every week. Maybe some of the arguments would be different every now and then, but every Sunday morning it was another session of giving arguments for the proposition that God exists. You would hope that before very long someone would tap him on the shoulder and suggest that perhaps the church should be a a bit past that point. And there were plenty of other good things to talk about that take the basic facts as a given the basic facts like the existence of God, the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus and so on, maybe it would be good to hear about how to follow Jesus or, or some of the implications of the gospel for justice or some of the more subtle and fascinating contours of theology other than just the fact that God exists. What the minister is doing does not represent good stewardship of the opportunity given to him. I've made this point elsewhere about the doctrine of eternal punishment, and it applies here too. Sometimes I think that people who argue for the view that I hold on human nature from a biblical perspective make the same kind of mistake as that minister. Nearly every time I see something written from a self-consciously Christian point of view, where the issue of human nature is involved and the writer or the speaker shares my view, what they are doing is making the case all over again from the ground up that this position on human nature, this materialist view, is a biblical one that Christians can and should hold. It's a constantly repeated session of asking for a seat at the Christian table, of justifying our position, saying, look, this view is correct. Now, there will, of course, be times when it's appropriate to make that case to people who Uh, who just don't know what the case looks like. In our conversations with other believers, or perhaps as part of our discussion with people who are not Christian and who would benefit from knowing that actually they don't have to uh, wrap their heads around accepting dualism in order to be a Christian. But in most cases... There's enough good work already out there to give people that we don't have to always reinvent the wheel. And it's an unwise use of our time, in my view, to keep doing so. The case has already been made, and we can have some confidence in that. We can refer people to that case, and we can move on to explore what the faith looks like once we know this about ourselves. What does it mean? for our understanding of Christ. Once we accept this view of human nature, where does it leave us when it comes to thinking about Jesus? Now, that's an area where I've been privileged to have done some work. How does a biblical understanding of humanity affect our understanding of pressing social matters about mental health and well-being, or familiar Christian issues like sin and salvation? Okay, and enough with asking the questions. I'm going to say something about the answers, but my main message is that there is much more to explore once we get past step one. So let's start with something that I'm sure won't be controversial in the least. Let's talk about sexuality and gender. Well, gender in particular. The close of the 20th century and certainly the early 21st century definitely the early 21st century like never before, has seen an explosion in the numbers of people who are transgender, people who experience gender dysphoria. They find it difficult to relate to or to identify with the sex that they're born into, and they identify with and describe themselves as being of the opposite gender from their biological sex. Now, there's a lot to say about that and its causes and consequences from a pastoral perspective. I'm not going to do that just now. I'm going to focus on the aspects of that discussion that overlap with my subject today. From my own knowledge of people who are affected by gender dysphoria and from my reading the writing of many more who are affected as well as reading the work of professionals who help people in that situation, there's a phrase that I have read more times than I can easily count and you've probably heard it too the phrase is this born in the wrong body I don't identify with this body this body isn't me this body is wrong this body is gross this body needs to be fixed so strong is this conviction that young people with with healthy bodies are being prescribed drugs to stop puberty from working, and they are receiving surgery to remove and destroy healthy body parts, rendering them permanently sterile and, I dare say, irreversibly damaged. Born into the wrong body. Think about those words. Now, I'm not saying that people who say this are intentionally expressing dualistic beliefs about the human person. They're probably not. Nor am I saying that if you're a dualist, then you are committed to affirming the truth that people can be born into the wrong bodies. You might still deny that for whatever reasons you have, but never mind what other people think. Never mind just for now what dualists think. If we have arrived at the position on biblical grounds that we are entirely material creatures and that this is enough to sustain a biblical vision of human worth and dignity, how can that inform us in the way that we approach this issue? Well, for one, we certainly have to say we certainly have something to say about the notion of being born into the wrong body. Now, again, when people say this, it's not as though they have thought about the implications of what they're saying in terms of bodies and souls. They're just using language that that feels natural to them. All the same, What a biblical worldview tells us is that you cannot be born into the wrong body because to state it very simply, you are a body. In the picture of the creation of humanity in Genesis 2, God forms what from the dust of the earth? Adam's body? No. The writer of Genesis says that God formed the man, Adam, from the dust of the earth. You can say, well, that's just his body, and okay, that's true, but the text calls that body the man. Whatever the complexities of the the psychological factors behind a person's difficulty in identifying with their body, any outlook that would say that your body is not really who and what you are is mistaken from a biblical point of view, and what needs to be addressed are your beliefs about your body. Secondly, here is where things are so important for parents, for pastors, and for anyone in a position of responsibility and care for people, especially young people and especially young women. Honestly, I don't know if you've ever looked, but the the numbers of young women who are referred for gender reassignment surgery are terrifying. They are so much larger than the number of young men. Now, remember, I'm not talking about what dualists think, and I won't pretend that Christian dualists have a disdain for the physical world and body. In many cases, I know that's not true. But for those of us who see a biblical view of humans as being holistic and physical, there is a clear motivator here to affirm that goodness, that beauty of the physical creation, and your goodness and beauty as a physical being. Touched by sin, yes, Falling short, yes. Flawed and damaged, yes. But created good and worthy of love and affirmation. There is an enormous problem in the developed world, especially for young people. And yes, it is a serious issue for men as well, but it's a much worse and more widespread issue for young women because of social pressures in accepting your body. Self-love And self-acceptance cannot be separated from body acceptance. Now, I don't mean body acceptance in in some self-neglecting way that you hear occasionally in the name of being body positive, where it doesn't matter what bodily condition you're in. Even if you're morbidly obese, you have to be good with it, even if you're not healthy. No, I mean that your body is you. And accepting that your body is what you are means that if you're going to learn to really love and respect yourself, you have to love and respect your body, to accept what it is, to look after yourself physically, and to see that uh, in the case of a persistent negative attitude to your body, where you reject your physical reality and you want to harm your body, whether you're doing it yourself or, or having it done surgically, then It is your beliefs and attitudes about your body that need to be challenged and changed, not your body. We see this all the time in the case of people who believe that they are fat when in fact they are starving, or men who are towering walls of muscle who believe that they are physically pathetic. The answer is never, well, if you think you're fat, then you should eat less, or well, if you think you're scrawny, then you really need to pack it on. No, no. The solution in every case is to work towards a place of loving yourself by loving your body, forming true beliefs about yourself on the basis of what is true about your body, and working, perhaps slowly and perhaps with great difficulty, to overcome any mindset that would tell you to do otherwise. So there's an issue. (laughs) Mental health more broadly. Let's take a step back from one particular issue in mental health, namely uh, our perception of our gender and, and dysphoria about it, and let's talk about mental health more broadly. It's Mental health is something that has been put under the spotlight in recent history. The truth is, however, as much as I would like to say quite a bit about it, I lack the expertise to do so at this point, something that I hope to change uh, thanks to my current studies. but. It's an area that conservative Christians have lamentably handed, handled, in some cases anyway, very poorly. In some cases. I don't want to exaggerate. But in some cases, it has been handled badly. Because of the way that human beings are spoken of as spiritual creatures, so that our real issues are spiritual, often with not much clarity about what that means, but Some innuendo about the fact that we aren't just animals. And because of an apparent, even if sometimes justified, suspicion of the field of psychology and psychiatric assessment. Because of those things, reading the comments on news stories or social media posts about mental illness or mental health, comments left by professing Christians, can be really quite concerning. The very ideas that trained professionals are good people to help us with our mental health or that medication can never be part of the appropriate solution are sometimes treated as though they are a compromise of our faith. And that that should never be a thing that we encourage. There's some fascinating research from Baylor University about the effects of prayer and of our beliefs about the God that we are praying to on our mental health. And as it turns out, with evidence indicating that prayer to a God who we believe is loving and protecting makes us less prone to suffer anxiety, for example. Other research from Columbia University indicates that regular participation in prayer or meditation actually makes a physical difference to the brain, thickening parts of the cortex, which might explain why such activities help to guard against depression. The one thing that I think I am qualified to say, all that stuff that I was just saying is reporting some interesting facts that I've learned. But one thing that I I think I'm qualified to say is that once we arrive at the view, the biblical view, as I think it is, that we are at bottom physical creatures, we have to take seriously the idea that mental health is something that can be got at and worked on via the natural sciences and by physical means. We can study it, as we can study all phenomena. It would be naive, of course, to to take a, uh, a view such as that chemical supplements can fix all things. That's obviously not true. Or that solutions to mental problems can be simplified if the mind is physically generated, as though... As though brains and the lives they lead are anything like simple. Of course they're not. The issues are going to be social and cultural and dietary and chemical and, yes, spiritual, because spirituality covers so much of our life. And certainly our health is a God issue because God loves us and cares deeply about our well-being. And our thoughts about God will affect our thoughts about so many other things, just as our thoughts about other things affect our thoughts about God. So that's another area that is a ripe field for harvest when it comes to rethinking our view of the human condition. Once we understand that we, we don't need to embrace dualism in order to be Christians, we can be materialists because the scripture teaches that, that's going to have an impact on the way that we think about mental health. Let's take another step closer to issues that we might think of as, as theological or doctrinal Sanctification is a good theological word. The idea of sanctification is a familiar one in Christian theology. The word literally means becoming holy. Sanctus is Latin for holy. It's a transformation that demonstrates that someone is a child of God. Our understanding of sanctification and what it involves, as well as the idea of sin and brokenness from which we are transformed, is affected by our understanding of human nature. I mean, how could it not be? Because the thing that is stuck in sinful ways and the thing that is being transformed is a human being. Once we abandon dualistic ways of thinking about the human person, there are some terms of phrase and, in some cases, vague ideas that we should be much more suspicious of. The idea of being spiritually dead presents us with one of those terms. And so when the New Testament talks about people being dead in sin, because people are not physically dead, some readers have inserted a concept of spiritual death, a new type of death, which, by the way, they then use to interpret biblical passages about the final death of the lost. After all, now there's another thing called death, namely spiritual death, and so maybe maybe death doesn't mean physical death in the context of the Last Judgment, they might think. Here, the idea may be that there's a part of it, call it our spirit, that is infected or in some sense dead prior to being made alive by God. Now, that's it's a way of thinking and speaking that does not sit well within a biblical view of human nature. Certainly, uh, a very naive dualism that says that sin is really a problem of the spirit, not the body, seems out of the question if we have accepted a biblical worldview according to which we are bodily material beings. And in fact, in spite of the term spiritual death primarily being used by people who consider themselves conservative evangelical Christians or reformed Christians in their outlook, that is, people who take scripture seriously, this language doesn't appear in the Bible at all. Spiritually dead, spiritual death, your spirit was dead Nothing like that can be called biblical phraseology. Scripture simply says to God's people that they were dead and that God has raised them to life and they should walk in newness of life. But this language of having been dead is metaphorical. Just as Scripture says that we died to sin, so we were once dead to God. The metaphor indicates the state of a relationship. If we are dead, then we are incapable of relationship obviously you can't have a relationship with a dead person so being dead to god indicates that we do not have a relationship and being dead to sin means that sin cannot have the relationship with us that it wants if we were actually just dead then we couldn't have a relationship with god or sin but back to the question of sin and sanctification embracing a biblical portrait of human nature invites us to pursue an avenue of thought and investigation that, with all due respect, most of us don't, and we probably should. And it may challenge us in some ways, which is good. It's more than I can cover here, but let me offer a signpost to just some of the issues that I think call for our attention when it comes to the issue of sin and transformation. One of the arguments that some dualists would give for the view that we are immaterial souls that have a body is the argument from free will. So philosopher um, J.P. Moreland says, and I quote, we do have free will. We all know that deep down inside, we're more than just a physical brain. And he also says, I quote, I have free will because I'm a self or a soul and I'm not just a brain." So the idea is that if we are composed entirely of physical matter, then our brains would just be reacting to the laws of physics, and so all our choices would be made by impersonal forces and would have no free will. We would be unable to act in any way other than the way in which we do act. And if that's true, then that takes away our responsibility for sin And it would mean that there's no virtue in obedience, but we can't accept that. So we need our version of free will to be true, and so we need to insert a soul into the mix to give us free will. Now, it's not really a type of argument that I'm sympathetic to, because it sounds for all the world like an argument that survives because of ideas that we just don't want to be true. And what's more... It's an argument that is starting to look somewhat naive in the face of a fairly clear consensus of evidence from the field of neuroscience. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In a now famous or perhaps infamous experiment by Benjamin Libet, is it Libet? I think it's pronounced Libet. I've read about this guy. I've never spoken to him. L-I-B-E-T. Subjects were asked to perform simple actions at times of their choosing while their brain activity was being closely monitored. And what researchers discovered is that the brain activity leading up to the performance of the action actually began before the subjects were aware of their decisions to act. Unbeknownst to them, their unconscious brain was preparing for the conscious decision. The brain had decided before they thought they had decided. Further experimentation indicated that subjects were able to veto the preconscious impulses of the brain, leading neuroscientists to say that while we might not have free will after all, perhaps what we do have could be called free won't. So neurobiology creates the options for us as a result of all kinds of internal and external stimuli that we might not be aware of, and we're able to resist or decline some of those options. Take another example. Actually, this is an interesting one for another reason. Going back to J.P. Moreland again, just because he's a prominent Christian voice in the case for dualism, Moreland made the following comment about early scientific, uh, neuroscientific experiments, claiming that they actually support dualism. This is what he said. Neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield electrically, electrically <laughs> stimulated the brains of epilepsy patients and found that he could cause them to move their arms or legs, turn their heads or eyes, talk or swallow. Invariably, the patient would respond by saying, I didn't do that, you did. According to Penfield, the patient thinks of himself as having existence, having an existence, apart from his body. No matter how much Penfield probed the cerebral cortex, he said, there is no place where electrical stimulation will cause a patient to believe or to decide. That's because those functions originate in the conscious self, not the brain. Okay. There are a couple of problems with the argument. Certainly the reaction of, I didn't do that, you did, does not support dualism as an explanation. I mean, I could grab your arm and use it to slap you in the face. Use it to make you slap yourself in the face. Um, And that would be comparable to what Penfield did, exerting a physical cause that has an involuntary effect on your body. But this silly arm-grabbing, face-slapping prank would not warrant the belief that you have an existence separate from your body. At best, it shows that whatever was stimulated, the conscious thing might not have been part of the causal chain. And it wasn't, because I was doing all the work. I was grabbing your arm and using it to slap you. But that doesn't show anything interesting. Uh, And more importantly, it's really not wise to appeal to scientific experiments that were conducted in the early 1950s when we've got so much more research that we can use now. So, for example, in a report published in Science 2009 called Movement Intention After... Parietal Cortex Stimulation in Humans is, is quite interesting, although the title's not. <laughs> I want you to notice the way that some of the cause and effect observations of this report are a bit like those from Wilder Penfield. So I quote, During stimulation, patient PM1 exhibited a large multi-joint movement involving flexion of the left wrist, fingers and elbow. He did not spontaneously comment on this, And when asked whether he had felt a movement, he responded negatively. Okay, so far not much interesting. But then observe. Stimulation of all these brain sites produced a pure intention, that is, a felt desire to move without any overt movement being produced. Without prompting by the examiner, all three patients spontaneously used terms such as will, desire, and wanting to, which conveyed the voluntary character of the movement intention and its attribution to an internal source that is located within the self. Now think about that. So here, the decisions of the conscious self were produced by a physical stimulation of the brain. It affected a person's will. So why didn't the earlier 1950s experiment by Penfield showed this happening? Well, who knows, really? I mean, each experiment is an incomplete part of the picture. The findings of each experiment are provisional. They are taken to be the best that we can do for now, but we may always learn more in the future. And what we now know is likely to be thought by some to be a threat to some of the things that Christians hold dear. Because what I've just described in these more recent experiments are the very thing that that Professor Morland was saying couldn't be done. You cannot exert a purely physical force on the brain and generate a decision. Because he says, our self, our decision-making center, is an immaterial mind, a soul. Well, actually, you can do that. So certain understandings of free will might be called into question by the view that we are material beings and by the available evidence in neuroscience. But as hard as you might find it, you should not reject what we find in scripture and what is visible through the natural sciences just because it has consequences that you would rather not face. Namely, it threatens your beloved doctrine of free will. But, having come to this stance on human nature through Scripture, and having been exposed to what some might regard as unnerving evidence about the way that we work, we are left with the question of how to think about what sin in us is, and what it does, and what it means to be transformed. Scripture uses a range of language to talk about these things. Some of it is rich in metaphor, and not all of the biblical authors express themselves in the same way. But the New Testament scholar, Joel Green, has identified some ways in which Scripture talks about these things that provide harmony. So here are three ways that both make very good sense of our experience, and they actually bear some echoes of what we've learned about the way that our minds work. Okay, so, in First Peter, the first letter of Peter, the writer talks about sin as a sculptor. He describes his audience as no longer shaped by the desires that marked your former time of ignorance, saying that you were liberated from the emptiness of your inherited way of life. He says that they once spent time conducting yourselves in acts of unrestraint there had been nothing keeping their impulses in check. Perhaps there was no exercise of free want. He now calls them to avoid worldly cravings. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he calls readers to ready themselves with the same pattern of thought as Jesus. But this isn't, as Green was at pains to add, the throw off all responsibility for sin, because after all, what does God expect of us? We were born in this world. Remember the term free won't, the act of resisting impulses, and look at how that might be reflected in Peter's reference to sin as lack of restraint. But it does drive home the point, one that a neuroscientist or a psychologist knows only too well, provided they have first embraced the reality of sin at all, that sin and its way of life are cultivated socially and enculturated into us as ways of thinking and living. We'll consider the famous description of sin from the letter of James. Where is sin conceived? It begins in the mind, in the form of desire, and when it is fully grown, it produces death. The solution, says James, is to get something else into that heart of yours, a new cause, something that will have a counteracting effect. And here it is in James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Save your lives, save your beings, souls. I don't think is a helpful translation. But so unlike John... James here doesn't use the language of word to mean Christ. He means the message because he immediately says, be doers of the word, not just hearers. As for our approach to sin, one of James's most famous comments sums up his approach. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. Again, there's the appearance of free won't. The reality of creating new neural pathways by a concerted effort to form new patterns of behavior and thinking so that the old impulses become a thing of the past was not something that James knew about, but he certainly knew the outward phenomenon that we should be aiming for. If we look, we can find similar themes appearing in Paul, especially when it comes to his talk about sin having dominion or control. He talks about Enslavement to sin, and he agonizes over his own condition. The things that I don't want to do, I still find myself doing them. He delights in God's law, but he cannot help but see that there is another principle at work within him. When we talk about personal transformation, we're talking about the transformation of the person, obviously, (laughs) by definition. (laughs) And if the person is a physical creature whose thoughts and patterns of thought are produced neurobiologically, then there is nothing unspiritual or naturalistic about accepting that sanctification is the transformation of this neurobiological unit that is me. It means a rewiring, it it means recognizing that so much of the way that we live is the product of well-worn pathways that it will take work to change. Work and community, and yes, of course, divine grace. Of course, we believe that God is at work in us. And the question is, what kind of work? Understanding the role of our brains in sin and conversion and change helps us to see why conversion is a process and why sanctification can seem like such a mountain to climb. It also, I hope, helps us to be gracious and patient with one another. The fact that something, some behavior that we associate with God's kingdom, comes so naturally to you and not to me, is no reason to look down on me. Don't assume that we all just that we're all just completely free agents, able to change at the same rate and without anything stopping us but our own uninhibited choice. We know that's not true. Because scripture says so, and so does science. And once we get a biblical picture of human nature right, our faith doesn't need to be threatened by that at all. God meets us all where we are at. And the change that I'm able to go through between now and the grave might seem small to you, but don't worry, it's not the end of the story. Now, I hope you get the sense that there is so much more that we could say. Remember, my main point Is that once we've gotten human nature right there's a heck of a lot more to move on and talk about but in the interest of time i'll press on to the final section which i've called salvation now of course we can't really separate salvation from personal transformation but i'm talking about salvation in the sense of having passed from death to life and being treated and regarded by god as an heir of eternal life. Suppose that we could recall all the, you might say, ontological facts about a person. Take a perfect snapshot. By ontological, I mean all the facts about their being, everything about all their substances, what they're made of, everything about their soul, if they had one, everything about their body. And then suppose that person is converted to faith in Christ, and we take... Another snapshot of all that information about them, say a day later. What differences would we notice? Any? None? Well, unsurprisingly, that depends on who you ask. Scripture says that if you're in Christ, then you're a new creation. But in what way? Aren't you made of the same stuff that you were before? Of course you are. What about the biblical language I talked about earlier? You were dead in your sins. God has raised you to life. Is that going to show up as a difference between the two snapshots? And if so, how? If someone's answer is that it's going to show up as a difference in someone's soul or spirit, because their soul or spirit was once dead, but now it's alive, then we have to say, no, that's not what the difference is, because that's not what human beings are like. You might have heard a remark or one like it from time to time that your eternal life begins when you place your trust in Christ. Now, from a New Testament perspective, that's something like the truth, but not quite. There's certainly a new life that begins in this lifetime. So when Saint Paul talks about uh, talks in Romans six <clears throat> about a person who is converted and baptized. He does say that we are baptized into Christ's death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too are raised to a new life. But that's about the nature of the life to which we are called as followers of Christ. It's not about its duration. That life is a life in community with the church, a life marked by obedience and failure and forgiveness. But to be fair, There is at least one place in the New Testament where believers in Jesus are spoken of as having eternal life. It comes from Jesus, actually. He said in John 6, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. End quote. Do we have it? Well, yes, but only in virtue of the fact that something is going to happen in the future. So what, in terms of our substances, in terms of our bits and pieces, in terms of what we are, changes when we, to use a common phrase, get saved? Well, <clears throat> in the midst of metaphors and about being born once more or about being raised from the dead, which are, after all, metaphors designed to help convey the idea of living a new life and so changing in that respect, there is, as we know, plenty of reference to something new in our lives, namely the Holy Spirit, God, working in our lives. Now, if you ask me for the mechanics of it, I'm afraid I have very little to say, but certainly a God who is not physical is capable of influencing the physical world. He created the physical universe, after all, But even here, the work of the Spirit in the New Testament is about equipping believers, gifting them for the service of others. As in uh, St. Paul's famous discussion about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, transforming our character as described by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. But none of that is what salvation amounts to. Not in the sense that we're talking about it here. I'll get to the point. If we're physical, then any change in us is a physical change at some level. Appreciating our physical nature helps us to see that our status as saved is not something that amounts to a change in our constituent bits and pieces. We're still made the same way, and we're still mortal, and we will still die, And here is where another role of the Holy Spirit becomes crucial. As St. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it. Now, did you catch that? That's what changed. We were sealed, marked with the Spirit of God that serves as a guarantee. It's like a marker by God which says, this one is mine. So that when the time comes, we will receive what God gives us in Christ. The theme rears its head elsewhere in in Paul's writing as as well. uh, Again, referring to the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, he said, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, to the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hoped, is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, End quote. It can be disempowering and humbling to think this way, and it ought to be. You don't have it now. You live in faith here and now in this world that is sometimes, as it has been described, a valley of tears. There it is, coming both from, from the teaching of Jesus and the writings of St. Paul, That being saved, being a child of God, is about present promises of future realities. I cannot walk around as a Christian and say that I'm something different from someone who isn't a believer. That if you took a snapshot of them and a snapshot of me, you'd see something better that's part of me. A super spirit or something like that. That's not how it works. And if we're physical creatures, then of course that's not how it works. God, by His Spirit, comes alongside us, is in us, is among us. I particularly like the New Testament metaphor of the church together as a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells, helping us on this new journey of following Jesus. But our confidence, our ability to say that we are saved is grounded in an objective fact that we cannot yet experience. We will be adopted as children of God. We will be redeemed. And as material creatures of God, those things will come to us materially when we, along with all of God's creation, are transformed through the resurrection of the dead. Salvation takes place, literally happens, in our very bodies and in the physical world. I'm going to draw this to a close. One of the risks when my point is that once we get past square one, there's so much to explore, is that it might feel like I haven't explored enough because there is so much that I could say. But I've given an indication of what some of that exploration will look like. For some people, giving up a familiar dualism will feel like being too far from home. Our whole way of thinking about us changes and so they might think that that just calls too much into question. Are we just animals? Are we really God's image bearers? Something that I haven't even touched on here. What about free will? Are we leaving room for our spiritual dimension? Whatever that means, among many other questions. So it's no good just expending the energy of getting people to give up a dualistic mindset and accept that scripture doesn't describe us that way. So what? What does that mean for all the areas where Christians might raise these concerns? Once we have, so to speak, acquired these new eyes? What does the faith look like? And what does this perspective enable us to say as Christians about pressing social or pastoral concerns? I've said what feels to me like just a little bit about these things, but hopefully enough to encourage you to see that there is a lot to explore.